Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you for being here. Um, if you would, turn with me to Romans 5, verses 12 through 21 will be our primary passage today. Um, and I'm going to encourage you. I have noticed that around Christmas time in our culture, we have completely dissociated the birth of Christ. I shouldn't say completely, but often dissociated the birth of Christ from why he is here in the first place. So my goal today is to give you a quick overview of what Christ's birth has to do with your life, with the Word of God as a whole, and hopefully this will explain a few things, and I promise it won't take me very long. Uh, I am known for long intros to very short sermons. This time I cut out the long intro, just a short sermon. All right? Um, So here's what we'll do. We'll jump right to it, and I need to explain something. I've noticed uh, that people will, at times, in fact, even those who grew up in church, will know of particular passages of Scripture, they'll know of particular stories, and they'll see them as dissociated somehow. Uh, They'll know about Daniel in the lion's den. They'll know about, I don't know, David and Goliath. They have no idea where those stories fit chronologically or theologically. And so what we often do here is explain that the Bible fits together in what we call a grand narrative or the biblical meta-narrative. And even though the book or this book is a collection of 66 books, 40 different authors writing over about 1,500 years, uh, and we have poetry, we have history, uh, we have apocalyptic literature, uh, we have historical literature, all of it fits together in what we call this grand narrative, which happens in four movements. The grand narrative is the message of the gospel, the good news that God is redeeming his people. It happens in four movements. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. You guys familiar with this? You've heard me say this? Yes. So what I'm going to do is go through these very briefly. First of all, we have creation. You might know that in Genesis 1-1, the very first verse of the very first chapter of the very first book of the Bible, we see that the first words are, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. This means that everything that exists has been made by him, and as such is subject to him and belongs to him. That means even you and I, you could be completely pagan. You could be so far from God, it doesn't matter. You, he made you, and you are responsible to him whether you like it or not. Today my goal is to help you understand why it's a good thing and you should like it. But as we know, uh, God created the first humans, Adam and Eve. Uh, he formed Adam from the dust of the ground. He formed Eve out of Adam, and he has this wonderful plan, and he says to them, listen, one thing you can't do, do not eat of this fruit of this particular tree. Everything else is for you. And as you can imagine, we already know, Adam and Eve sinned against God in this very simple but very clear way. I would love to be able to blame everything on Adam or on Eve, but the reality is, Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That means that even though our original parents sinned, I also have sinned, and so I bear blame as well, not to mention have I inherited a sin nature from Adam. It's not great. But here's something that I will point out. Um, By the way, if you download the notes, uh, there's that QR code on there. You can use these later if this is helpful. But... There is, in the curse against those who were involved in the fall, a curse against man, woman, and the serpent, 
there is a promise built in. We call this the Proto-Evangelion, the idea that this is the first gospel. It shows up as soon as man sins. When man sins, because God is perfect, he cannot be in relationship with sin, and so man is separated from God, who is the source of light and life and all that is good, and thus death is brought into the world. When God is cursing the serpent who tempted Eve, here's what he says. So I'm looking at Genesis 3, starting in verse 14. It says, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, I don't have to tell you that a crushing head wound is a whole lot worse than a foot wound, unless you're Achilles, and Jesus is not Achilles. Um, I will just point out that it is no coincidence that the first woman was tempted and committed the first sin and then encouraged her husband, who, by the way, should have led her and protected her from the deception of the serpent, instead abdicates his role to lead, and he sins with her. But it was the woman who first was tempted and led her husband into sin. It is no coincidence, then, that it is through a woman, through Mary, that God sends the Redeemer, the seed of woman, to crush the head of the serpent. And here we have in the very beginning story, when everything is falling apart, the promise of a coming redeemer shows up in the curse on the serpent. Because what God is sending the redeemer to do is crush the life that brought about death. The redeemer is coming to kill death and all of the effects of sin. So if you would look with me to Romans 5:12. Paul is explaining this connection between the first Adam, Adam, and what we call the last Adam or the second Adam, that being Jesus Christ himself. And he's drawing this connection between Adam who was not born of woman and now Jesus who was born of woman but of a virgin. So, verse 12, it says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. So notice he's like, Adam brought sin into the world, death came with sin, they go together, but also everyone of sin has sinned, and everybody has experienced the effects of it, which are all forms of death. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Notice what he's saying here is, even though the law of Moses hadn't been given, sin still existed. Now, the law of Moses came to count sin, to say, hey, look, look at how you don't measure up to God's perfect righteousness. And yet, the sin was still there. It just wasn't as visible. And yet, its effects were as well there. And so he's saying, sin came through one man, Adam. Carrying on in verse 15, it says, But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following the one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. 
For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Do you notice the the parallel here, or maybe we should say a contrast, where we have the first Adam who has brought sin and death through his disobedience. Now the second Adam, Jesus Christ, is bringing life and righteousness through one act of obedience. That one act of obedience is the fact that he lived a perfect life without sin. He gave us, we call it the doctrine of imputation. He gave us his righteousness. He took on the sins of all who would believe and then died on the cross as God poured out his wrath for sin. God really does get angry. He really does have wrath against what is evil. He doesn't just wink at those things and say, oh, well, they'll try better next time. No, he hates sin. And he poured all of it out on his son who went to the cross willingly to pay for everything you and I ever did wrong. Notice this contrast. So then the issue is, which Adam am I in? Do I receive the gift of righteousness by being in the last Adam? Or do I continue in my default state, which is to be under the first Adam, our original dad? You guys following me here? Following what Paul is saying here in Romans 5? Cool. Uh, Verse 18, it says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You understand what's happening here? You do not earn your salvation. You cannot earn your salvation. You are either under the headship Adam or you are under the headship of Christ. That It's as simple as that. You are either enjoying the righteous gift that Christ has given or you are suffering the punishment of sin that you inherited from your father Adam. So then the question that always comes up that I'm bringing around here on Christmas, when Jesus was born... It wasn't just a nice thing that a new royal was born. I know people get excited, like one of the British monarchy, they have a baby, and they're like, oh, yay, and and it's cool, right? But we tend to think like, oh, that's just kind of a nice thing. It's just kind of a celebrity thing. The opposite is happening here. The king of kings is being born in the lowliest state possible, as low-born as we can probably imagine. Everything about his life is lowly, except for the fact that he is truly God and truly man, and he is living a perfectly righteous life. We really don't need to celebrate the birth. It's worth celebrating the birth. It's a good thing. We should. But the reality is he is coming here to reign as king and to slay the great enemy of our sin and death. So, Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Very simple thing. Sin leads to death, as we've already seen. There is a free gift in Christ. 1 Peter 2.24 describes this. Peter says, he himself, that is Christ, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Uh, A little callback to Bob's prayer this morning. So quite simply... 
Um, when we're talking about the movements here, we talked about creation and fall. Redemption comes by Christ. He died to pay our sin debt. We call it the atonement. He rose from the dead to give us new life. Romans 10, 9, and 10 makes it very clear how you step into the headship of Christ and out of the headship of Adam. This is because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with the heart that one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Pretty simple. Either you continue in your default state under Adam, or you acknowledge your sin, you turn from it, you put your trust in Christ, recognize that he is king, put him in charge, you believe that he died for your sin debt and rose from the dead. It's pretty simple. You don't earn anything, but that is redemption. That is how you are in. Now here's the thing I have to add. We recognize that by the way, not adding to the gospel. I just want to talk about its effects. We tend in, in much of evangelicalism to stop there, right? We just say, awesome, Jesus paid your sin debt. And let me just tell you, it is awesome. Like that, that's like the death blow to the enemy. Like it's the victory has been won. We're in the cleanup battle now. But we tend to forget that he really is king. We tend to forget that the prophecies about him are not just about the fact that he's getting you your get-out-of-hell-free card. He is indeed getting you that. But we should recognize that he is indeed a king, and he is indeed here to reign. And so I want to draw attention to Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. Prophecy written hundreds of years before Christ's coming, and he writes this. Now notice, this is a messianic prophecy. This is about the coming of Christ, and note what it says. It says, for uh, to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and, and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Notice. Jesus doesn't just come to be king over your heart. He comes to be king over everything. That means he conquers the rebellion that is in your heart by paying your sin debt and killing the effects of death, putting you back in a right relationship with God. But he is to be king over everything. The government shall be on his shoulder. He will bring about an increase in his government that will not end, and there will be justice and righteousness. This is what we hope for. This is what we look for. And so let me just tell you, I notice that it's a bad time in a lot of our culture. I am encouraged to recognize that Jesus is king and that his government shall not end. It will continue to increase. We're celebrating the birth of a king who really is king. You guys with me? This is, by the way, why we do things like I got really excited when the, when the Baphomet statue in Iowa got knocked over and its skull was crushed. Its skull was crushed, right? The seed of woman comes to conquer evil. Always smash idols. I don't care if they put it up and say that it's legal. It's not le There is no legality in blaspheming the king of kings. So in case you need permission to crush idols, you just tell them Pastor Dan told you. Um, as I'm wrapping up here, I want to, because I'm putting this all together, right? Because this is restoration language. Remember we talked about creation, fall, redemption. Restoration is promised in the Messianic Isaiah prophecy, not just in the Messianic, but beyond that. And so let's look to Revelation 21. When Jesus, this is, a, this is apocalyptic literature, this is the end of all things, and it says this of Christ, starting in verse 1 of Revelation 21. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, 
For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Do you catch this? This is a call back to Genesis chapter 3. Remember that sin and death came by sin, and Jesus Christ has conquered and crushed the head of the serpent. He is making all things new, so I no longer have to grieve the passing of parents, the passing of children. I no longer have to grieve brokenness in relationship, because he will bring us to a point where those things are gone. The serpent's head will be crushed. He will have walked through the streets in triumph, and this is what we're hoping for. This is why when we preach the gospel, we don't end merely with, cool, 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 you don't have to go to hell now. We continue with, and Jesus is king. Don't let anybody else rule over your heart or over anything else for that matter. Continuing on in verse 5, it says, He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega the beginning and the end, to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, or the, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. How interesting that in this time, like, he's going to make everything happy and new, and there's not going to be any crying anymore, and he's going to burn anyone else who is in rebellion against me. Because Jesus takes seriously righteousness. You are either in Adam or you are in Christ. Be in Christ. Um, Merry Christmas. Um, It's good news. Not just a little baby in the manger. He came to make all things new. So would you worship with us? If you have any questions on the gospel, feel free to ask. I'm around. Um, Repent and believe the gospel, brothers and sisters. It's good news, and it has direct effects right now. So, Lord Jesus, as we finish out today in worship of you, may your kingdom indeed come. May your will be done. Lord, as we celebrate what you have done, uh, God, may we celebrate it all. Celebrate that you came and were born. You humbled yourself to become flesh, truly God and truly man. You live perfectly righteous. You died and took on our sin to pay for all of it, giving us your righteousness. And then you rose from the dead, conquering death. Lord, all of that is amazing. It's beyond our comprehension. And yet, you are still bringing the effects of crushing the serpent's head even now. And may we look ahead, glorifying you for what you have done, what you are doing, and what you will do, that a day is coming when all things will be made new. So may your kingdom indeed come. May your will indeed be done. And may those who don't know you put their trust in you. In Christ's name, amen.